Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Dalit Barohaj, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Today, it's just us. Uh, we're promising, let's hope we'll manage somewhat of a shorter episode to update you on, I guess, our thoughts on what happened to Prigozhin and, of course, what is happening in the United States, um, a bit of a, a toxic environment as we're looking into the headlines, commenting on the counteroffensive, as well as on um, political debates um, going, uh, going on around Ukraine that have certainly made the tour of the world. But We'll start with Prigozhin, and I guess the question on everybody's minds for the last few hours, days, um, has been what happened to him? Was it an air defense missile? That was the initial information. Was it an explosion on the plane? Did he fall out of the window of a plane? Or was it, um, this is from Dalibor's contribution off of the internet, a special landing operation? Hey, hey, what, so, about, what about my meme of uh, him standing? I don't know how to put that in words. Okay. You explain it. There's, you know, the famous pictures of various uh, Soviet officials, generals, and so on being photographed in various locations. Uh, with Stalin, uh, and then the subsequent erasure of those officials uh, from the official photographs of Stalin. So some semi-clever uh, Photoshop artist put a, uh, put up a picture of Prigozhin standing next to Stalin, and then a picture of uh, Stalin without Prigozhin. I, I thought Giselle did it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in, that in technologically back- advanced. Impeccable graphic uh, graphics editing skills, uh, but but in a, in a departure from 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 the Stalinist era, uh, Putin did offer condolences, right, yes. and, and 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 summarized Prigozhin's contributions and said he was a had been a loyal man, it, uh, yes. talented man. Mistake. I, I I knew him. He was a friend of mine. <laughs> 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 yes, um, that that is important too. But then um, beyond the jokes, I guess, and the mysteries that will probably never be revealed, I think there's an agreement that this is quite an act of power on Putin's um, side, quite a statement. You know, it's not the, I'm sure Prigozhin was, you know, um, uh, having people test his tea and wasn't touching any doorknobs, um, etc. But, it, you know, he, Prigozhin went out with quite a big bang. Um, and so this is quite a statement. Two months later, of course, the Russians, I don't know if you guys have noticed, have blamed it on the Ukrainians. Um, this was on Ukraine Independence Day. Um, and so there's, I think, a lot that will stay as a mystery, but certainly... Putin um, has made his power statement uh, in quite a spectacular fashion. And the the bigger question is, what will happen with, with Wagner overall? And of course, our 
the Russians able on the one hand to achieve anything in Ukraine, unlikely without Wagner. And on the other hand, and that's very interesting to me, Wagner has been over the last few months and years becoming really a power player across uh, many African countries. And you cannot really put there the conventional armed forces because this is by definition private military mercenaries. So what will happen there um, in terms of links, resources, um, power, um, power projection of Russia, and uh, and also in, in terms of legitimacy, because Prigozhin had built some personal relationships. If I could just say, I think you hit on the, the I think the really key points that people are missing, you know, this is such a, you know, mafia movie ending for Prigozhin that it obscures the fact of Prigozhin and Wagner in the first place, which was not, you know, is not a measure of a strong state or strong central control. So, you know, Putin got his man in the end, and he made a good show of it, and so on and so forth. But to me, the lasting importance comes from Wagner's simple existence and Prigozhin's ability to ability to leverage that into a challenge to the Tsar. Like I say, I, I, I think people are either just, you know, enjoying the entertainment value of this too much and completely misreading what the actual larger scale power situation is in the first place. So I, I think this is such an important point. So, so I, I, I presume that one could make the argument in the abstract that in a regime like Putin's, you might want to create, you know, Praetorian guards and various different sort of, you know, checks and balances to prevent the military from taking control Etc. I mean, we've sort of seen that in in other contexts. So, so, so the sole existence of the Wagner Group, I don't think, is is quite as shocking. However, the fact that they actually, you know, drove up that highway 150 miles to Moscow unchecked with the security services completely caught off guard and and and, and paralyzed, that that I think revealed a fundamental weakness of of the Putin regime. And I'm not sure that the event of this week necessarily changed the picture dramatically. I mean, Mark Galeotti had a great piece in, in The Spectator today on Friday the 25th, where he says that it is not, I mean, it is a, it is a mark uh, of a well-organized authoritarian regime that it doesn't need to openly kill insiders because all of those insiders are already deterred from mounting any kind of challenge to, to the authority of the regime. From breaking the rules, and and, and so so Prigozhin basically got away with breaking the rules, and, and I don't know what deal had been struck after after what was it June twenty eighth, but but then he sort of reappeared on on social media, and and then he was clearly doing his own thing. Uh, so, so 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 to me, um, there is still a lot of fragility to to this to this institutional setup. Tyrants who have elite forces or forces separate from the regular military, you know, the SS uh, uh, under the Nazis or even the Republican Guard under Saddam or uh, Napoleon's Imperial Guard, 
um, or the were PLA not, under the Communist Party of yeah, China. Yeah, okay. So there's, I mean, the history of full is full of sort of analogies where autocrats will have forces that are separate from the normal military chain of command. But first of all, those, unless things go, you know, badly, they're not rivals uh, to the power of the leader. They are enforcers of the power to the leader against, uh, you know, more traditional uh, military organizations, regular professional forces. And Wagner is, was exactly the opposite of that. Uh, it was off the leash. It was, yeah, as Delabor rightly pointed out, you know, eventually a challenge to Putin's power and leadership. And the simple fact that he, you know, staved off Prigozhin and, and Wagner. And, and by the way, the in the last couple of days, the, the Wagner loyalists have, are vowing revenge. Who knows what will actually happen, but you have to take that at least somewhat seriously. Certainly. And I think uh, back to the mafia analogy, what's to me the only explanation or sort of thread that makes sense in all of this, um, looking, you know, looking back to at the mutiny and now what happened, who pushed Prigozhin into doing that, which, you know, it was quite a mystery and and remains uh, one. How did this happen. The only explanation here that sounds, and of course it's the, you know, pure speculation that sounds credible is political infighting among different branches of the Russian security services. We know that Prigozhin was close to the GRU. Um, there's already speculation out there that this might have been um, Prigozhin's um, fall out of the window, might have been um, linked to the FSB, which would make sense also given Putin's background. Putin himself coming out of these ranks um, directly. Uh, and so with that in mind, the question is, it, it, it's, it speaks to the fact that we have the situation completely out of control, that whatever happens in um, Russia is um, a, a division of power and a political fighting among them without anyone um, any external power, including China, by the way, seeming to be able to even grasp what is happening. And so we can, the only thing we can assume beyond the Africa and beyond the Ukraine um, sort of presence and wars, including with already the, the government now in Russia pushing in favor of alternative mercenary groups, private military groups. The only thing that we can presume is that this infighting will continue in a form or another as long as Putin stays in power, but likely also after Putin um, leaves power in a way or another, whether in a year or 10 years from now, because the only groups and individuals that can um, in one way or another, again, uh, resist him or take away his power come from the same ranks of the Russian intelligence services. Does that make sense? You know, part of me just gets so frustrated in trying to, you know, read behind what's going on behind the curtain in Moscow. All that sounds quite reasonable to me, but if we just look at the externalities you know, the uh, aggressiveness of the Putin regime, which very much continues the Russian 
imperial tradition, the fundamental weaknesses of the state. It's, uh, you know, one product economy, it's failing demographics, uh, the fact that there are subject peoples across the Russian Federation who aren't particularly happy about that. This is the failure. This is a surviving, you know, sort of reptilian, but failed state in some fundamental way that can lash out and can make life miserable for its neighbors and for the rest of the world. But that doesn't doesn't obviate the human and structural and political weaknesses that the Russian state is riddled with, you know, regardless of, you know, Putin's, you know, sort of merciless leadership. There's almost like an inter interesting sort of intellectual exercise for students of international relations. If you are, if you are looking at it through, uh, through the lenses of, 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 of just sort of realist theory, that there, there should be normally some kind of almost like an evolutionary mechanism that, that forces states to behave pretty much in the same way. Otherwise, they are going to face... I mean, the sort of forces of the sort of zero-sum competition that takes place in the international realm. Yet, when you look at places like Iran or Russia, you have this strange combination of, of you know, distinctly lacking state capacity mm -hmm. to do things, dysfunction, and this superbly sort of aggressive outlook on international affairs that makes them pariahs on the, on the global stage. And, and somehow these regimes just like linger on for decades. Uh, so, so that suggests to me that the sort of you know, the well, so Russia's Russia's position as a Eurasian state, neither full or European or anything else, you know, sort of allows it. Germany couldn't get away with this. France couldn't get away with this. Spain, you know, Habsburgs couldn't get away with this. States that are fully participatory and integrated and connected to modernity and to the modern political system, those that have attempted to become hegemons, with the sole exception of the United States, which sort of lurched uncontrollably into it. Um, Imperial Japan would be another. Fail and reform. Russia hasn't fully failed yet. And until it's defeated, I don't, you know, that is, it can't face up to its own uh, malaise or or whatever. So you know, I think until Russia is is forced to renounce its imperial project, it will you know sort of limp along or wheeze along or you know. I think the trajectory is downward to be sure, but it, it as Dalibor says, it it uh, is dying slowly. Well, and it will make life miserable for everybody else. Adam Smith was fond of saying that there is a lot of ruin in the nation, and I mean, I guess in a country of the of, of Russia's size, yeah, it can be sort of dysfunctional for a very long time, and it wouldn't be the first sort of failed or semi-failed state that has been going on for, 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 for decades. That, that, to me, is a sort of case for proactive leadership on part of countries like the United States. Uh, I was going to uh, intro that exactly um, in this way, but with a bit more, <laughs> with a bit more of, a, of a humorous comment. I don't know if um, our audience has seen this or not, um, President Biden was asked about what he thinks happened with Prigozhin 
and, and the way he answered was in some kind of an outdoor shopping mall with a smoothie. Oh, he had like he'd just come from his Pilates class or something. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, and, and, you know, it's on the one side, it's showing, well, yeah, we're relaxed about everything. But on the other hand, there's the New York Times headlines um, that we wanted to talk about here about how we're lording over and patronizing the Ukrainians that they're not doing enough with the counteroffensive, you would think that we would already at this moment have the foresight to say exactly what Dalibor, Giselle, and I are saying, well, we need to get moving people, um, but in, in Russia actually needs to be defeated. But what is where is the problem here in Washington? Well, it's kind of all over. You know, a lot of people, it is most visible and pronounced, you know, sort of in the mega- world, uh, notably in the outburst of Vivek Ramaswamy after the uh, the debate the other night. Uh, but I think it, it sort of, I think there are, well, maybe we should try to sort of dissect this a little bit. There's clearly the MAGA element. There's also kind of the traditional anti-war element, which has kept its head down pretty much, you know, in, in the Democratic Party. But there's also sort of an element of the foreign policy realist apparat, you know, who <laughs> sort of curiously wants to be its predictions of Russian victory, its failed predictions or frustrated predictions. It's like they're still hanging around hoping that, you know, history will uh, bear out their seemingly inept pre-war analysis. So, you know, there are I think there's an element in the intelligentsia that recoils from, certainly recoils from the moral dimension of the war, which I think is apparent to all of us, and we've discussed many times before, but seeks some sort of self-justification and will seize at any moment to sort of, in an indirect way, say, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. So there are a few different things, I think, packaged into into what, what you say. First of all, I do think that uh, President Biden's reaction to Prigozhin's special landing operation was one, was one of his better moments. Um, it's a very dark Brandon moment, if I may say. Indeed. Um, uh, and 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 secondly, and on a more serious note, uh, the New York Times piece that that Julia alluded to is is one that I think is is very much out of sync with the dark Brandon theme, because clearly that was driven by people in the administration. I don't know in DoD saying things to journalists. Right and, and sort of sharing their frustration with how slow things are going and how Ukrainians are not doing what we've been advising them, and so on and so forth. That that, that to me is you know not not a sign of us as the United States having a very good handle on what's happening. And if there is a sense in the administration that the Ukrainians are not making the sort of progress that we have been hoping for, mm. the response should not be to leak it to the New York Times, but to give them the stuff that they need to finish the job or to accelerate the training programs or to make the case to the public why Ukrainian success is important and why perhaps more resources are needed to to make that, that that success materialize, and and I mean in, in the context, especially 
of, 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 of the election season that's coming, it just makes zero sense to me. Like if, if, if the posture of the administration is going to be like sort of whine and complain about the Ukrainians not doing enough while not doing anything demonstrable to, to help and to make things better. Uh, like that, that, that's even like at a, at a very basic sort of political level, that's not a you know, particularly appealing strategy that, that sort of makes the president look wimpy and ineffectual and invites people like Vivek Ramaswamy to you know, hit the administration on the head saying, well, you know, look, they were wasting money achieving nothing. So I would, I, would, I, would, I would imagine that, you know, they would want to step up somewhat, but I, I just don't see that. Well, okay. So both chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, came out to sort of knock it down afterwards. And so did Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. But the president has left this door open by his failure to articulate and, and to cheerlead or, or explain the, the the stakes there hasn't been one there, you know the the kind of oval office address that the occasion calls for is conspicuously absent. Well, what was the last major speech on on Ukraine? There hasn't been one. It remains a mystery how Ukraine is linked to national security and the national interest of the United States, and that of course is just like Giselle says. Um, a complete failure and all Biden's fault. No one stops him from talking about it. And he could do it as war escalation mongering, a fear mongering as, as he would want to, right? He can take it in any direction and Jake Sullivan can tell him this or can tell him that and he's free to say yes or free to say no. Um, but but that's that to me is an oddity in itself that should have happened at the beginning of the war. And in my opinion, it should have happened a year later with an assessment with the responsibility that the White House has towards um, the American people to say, we've done so far A, B, C, and D, and this is where things are going. Um, but the way it's mentioned in the State of the Union um, address every year is not, I, I can't, take that into account as, you know, a speech uh, and, and an assessment of um, our support for Ukraine. But let me then put things into perspective with a question for both of you. Given the New York Times headlines, and it's not the first time, the pressure that we see again and again from the Biden administration that um, they're not giving enough, not by any measure on the one hand, and on the other hand, expecting um, some kind of miracle. And if this trend is continuing, this is bad news for Ukraine. And then on the other hand, the debate um, on the Republican side that demonstrates that there is no um, serious candidate that is in favor of um, support for Ukraine. So what does that mean then for the war and for um, U.S. support in a year from now? You're looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> Feel free to go first. <laughs> you know, um, I have a couple of thoughts that I may not be able to uh, to connect. Okay, if we use the Republican, the recent Republican debate as uh, a point of demarcation, first of all, the anti-Ukraine commentary, particularly from Ramaswamy, was, I think, you know, again, he solidified his position as the Trumpiest of the non-Trump uh, candidates. But, I mean, he also looked like a complete doofus, just, you know, especially on 
foreign policy issues more generally. And he was, I think, pretty much gutted by both Mike Pence and Nikki Haley and to a certain degree, Chris Christie on uh, on this issue. So, you know, being the second most beloved, I mean, he's replaced Ron DeSantis as the second most beloved uh, mega candidate. And, you know, by the way, DeSantis sort of got the worst of both worlds by sort of, you know, tentatively being against Ukraine aid, but seeming to sort of slipstream behind uh, Vivek in this regard. I mean, he is, I think he's just a complete automaton as a as a candidate, but that's a separate issue. And I think that the balloon of anti-Ukraine sentiment in the Republican Party, and especially uh, among the congressional MAGAites, is not, you know, that the air can be pretty easily let out of that balloon. So, I mean, that's, that could go into that a little bit more deeply. So I think, especially if Trump is defeated in next year's election, you know, the the MAGA base will still be there, but it'll be decapitated and deflated. And I would predict that support for Ukraine will be more tenuous than uh, it needs to be, but that it will be, you know, that it will continue and persist. Um, the, the only thing that could really jeopardize it, I believe, is uh, a Trump victory. And you can't even be sure, you know, you know, Trump, you know, Trump promised to build the wall between the United States and Mexico, and it never happened. Uh, you know, Trump's first order of business will be to pardon himself and then to wreak revenge on his domestic political enemies. So Gisela remains an optimist. What about Danibor? So I'm not entirely sure I agree, actually. So so I, I don't think a Trump victory is the only way towards eroding that, 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 that support for Ukraine. Uh, I mean, another way in that that brings us to that same destination is if the war just goes on in an inconclusive fashion and people get tired of it on both sides of the spectrum and you know even if if Trump does get defeated i mean he does have this contingent of supporters for whom i think ukraine does play a role in their imaginations but it has to do with the perfect call or or you know like any of the other sort of narratives that have sort of taken on since then. But I mean, there, there is a sort of dedicated cohort of people who don't want us to help Ukraine and, and, and the rest, which might still be a plurality of the party, I think might get less and less energized as uh, the war just takes on this, you know, inconclusive, frozen, quasi-frozen character. But it's not, it's at least thus far, not frozen. I mean, the... the outcome or the sort of denouement of the complaints voiced in the New York Times story was the uh, revelation that, in fact, the Ukrainians have broken through the first line, the most robust line of Russian defenses in in southern Ukraine. Um, so the story of the counteroffensive is a long way from being over. And this is, this is, this is almost a perfect replay of of last year, when it seemed that the Ukrainian counterattacks 
uh, worst all. That doesn't mean that, you know, this is the uncertainty of warfare. But, you know, we've kind of seen this movie before. And the analogy, why people continue to bet on Russian strength and cleverness is, is a, I think, a more important question than how fast the front line is moving today in Ukraine. So I think there are two separate things. One is, one is um, the reality of warfare and how things are changing on the ground. And the second aspect of the problem is just sort of attention spans in the age of social media and, and, and sort of hyper-polarized politics. And those two things are not necessarily in sync. And, and, and it has been a feature of America's political life that, that people do get tired of things and want to move on. And, and yes, I mean, Ukrainians have had some impressive successes on the battlefield. But like if you don't generate successes that people can tweet about you know, every two months, then people want to try move on to the next crisis or, or the next big thing. And, and, and that's kind of dangerous. And that, that's why you need sort of political leadership to make the case continuously for why this is important. Yeah, you know, I've heard this in very stark terms all across um, my travels to the Eastern Front this summer. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's worth uh, mentioning here because it is the risk that we're facing and we're trying to package it in a nicer way, but, but I wouldn't underestimate it. And that is, you know, Ukrainians are saying, and of course they are, we are obliged to fight. We have no choice. So if push comes to shove and if the United States slows down its military aid, which I think is the threat here um, in terms of packages and quality and quantity, if that happens, we will fight with sticks and stones. And what they think when they say that is that we will then in the United States and across the West, because it goes without saying that Europe will, will follow the United States, we will just feel the moral obligation to keep helping because, um, because of the, the humanitarian situation. But in reality, and, and this is unfortunately what has happened in Afghanistan and has happened so many times with the United States, we will move our cameras from CNN and BBC and ABC and whatever else, and we will forget about it. And they can fight for as long as it takes for them, but as long as they don't have the means and they don't have the support, it's a really unfair fight with one of the biggest powers in the world, even if they are failing, even if they are um, failing inside for basically for a long time, if, if they've ever been successful inside, this is how Russia operates. And for them, it's a war that can take 10 years. And at some point with sticks and stones, the Ukrainians will not have much choice. I would like to offer two hopeful notes in a kind of lugubrious, or lugubri if I can be lugubrious and hopeful at the same time. Uh, let me say that, first of all, it took us 10 years to get sick of Iraq. It took us 20 years to get sick of Afghanistan. I don't think the Ukrainians will need that long to drive the Russians uh, but, but in back. Afghanistan and in Iraq, we were on the ground with our military might. Here, it's just a matter of turning the cameras in the other way. <laughs> exactly. So you can interpret that both ways. So no Americans are dying. So, you know, 
that that's still a good thing. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, the Ukrainians, um, we cannot say of the Ukrainians as we did of the Afghans and the Iraqis that they won't fight for their country. That Absolutely is just, out of the uh, question, clearly yeah. not the case. Not even Putin my, can say that. <laughs> yeah. My second sort of uh, unhappily sunny point was that I, I can actually, I think we can begin to see uh, Eastern Europeans taking on the idea that their relationship with the United States is not as certain as they thought. You know, the Nordic countries are going to be first in the queue to transfer F-16s to the Ukrainians. They've already made that commitment. And you can already see in, say, the really enormous scale of Polish rearmament and modernization that frontline states, in particularly in, in Northeast Europe, take this threat much more seriously and are willing to take far greater risk. That, I think, has an effect of pushing us in the back. But at some point, the uh, you know some form of European strategic autonomy in the form of uh, the Baltic states and the Nordic states uh, and the Poles mm. may come to the, to the fore. So I mean, you know, for me that would that would be kind of unfortunate in the sense that it would diminish American leadership and probably be less immediately effective than a American leadership. But it's not an impossibility. And one that would keep Ukraine in the game, I think. All right, tell, tell you know, I'm trying really hard. To, to... <laughs> um, yes, let's just end it here because uh, it can always go south. And because I think now beyond jo jokes that this is a lot of um, food for thought um, for our listeners too, um, um, but for us too. Um, and so um, let's uh, leave it um, at this and we'll continue the conversation after things in Moscow are evolving around what is going to happen with Prigozhin. So from me, Nuria Zoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Dalgurohaj, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. To stay up to date with the Eastern Front, please give us a follow on Twitter at Eastern Front Pod and sign up for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, ai.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.